Hello, everybody. My name is Carolyn Green, and I'm a grateful, grateful member of this worldwide fellowship that we call Al-Anon. And uh, it's a privilege. It really is a privilege and an honor anytime I'm asked to to come and share my story at a conference or any place. Uh, it, it really is. And your theme, Celebrate the Miracle, this is one of my miracles that I can do this. Because when I came in through the doors of Al-Anon, I was a scared little girl. I was a very scared little girl. And the last thing I ever expected would be that I'd stand up here and do this because I I was that afraid of people. And uh, I came in with my two biggest fears when I walked through the door was fear of financial insecurity and fear of people. And I hope as I share my miracle tonight, that uh, this afternoon, that I share how I've worked through some of that. And really, the, the reason I've been able to work through those things is because I've been willing. This program told me that, that I just had to say yes. I had to say yes when I was asked any AA or Al-Anon request I'm supposed to say yes to. And believe me, I never felt adequate. I never felt uh, good enough, smart enough, talented enough. I mean, I grew up with all these insecurities. Uh, I relate a lot. I relate a lot to what I hear alcoholics share. Um, it, it's just amazing. The only difference was my obsession was with the alcoholic. Their obsession was with the alcohol. But the alcoholic did for me what the alcohol did for y'all. What can I say? You know. Uh, so that was my obsession. But I walked through the doors, and I, I really, I used to sit back and watch people stand behind the podium, and I never, ever thought I'd ever do this. And, and really, I believe today if I'd known that I was going to, I'd have probably quit coming. <laughs> not me. I'm not going to do that. But So that is one of my miracles. It really is one of my miracles. I want to thank uh, Carrie and Candy and Ann and anybody, anybody responsible for me having the opportunity to come and be with you this weekend. This is this has just been fantastic so far. Uh, Hollywood did a great job. Anna did a fantastic job with her demonstration this morning. The meeting, the red ball meeting this morning, I hope that was open. I went into it. <laughs> Everything has just been fantastic. But I want to tell you that the, the recovering members of AA have played as big a part in my recovery as my Al-Anon program has. It, they really have. I am so grateful that AA share their program with us. I am so grateful that they that AA shares their program with the family members because we need it. And, you know, I lived through all that craziness and insanity, and I was sober. I realize today that a lot of the times that we were in our craziest, most insane behavior, he was in a blackout. I was sober, and I was living through it. And I did it over and over and over. And I got to Al-Anon, and one of the first things I heard is insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And, oh, my goodness, uh, as I share my story, you'll see I had a lot of insanity in my life. I, I related to your joke. I never fell out of the car. I just demanded he stop and let me out. Now, when you're on a highway in the middle of no place, that's not a very good idea. But I would demand he would stop and let me out. I would get out, and then I would hide from him. So if he came back, he'd worry about me. Now, how crazy is that? And one time in particular, I did that, and I... I did. I did not have my purse with me. I had no way to contact it. We didn't have cell phones. There was no cell phones. I got out of the car, decided I would hide from him. I walked down off of the highway, and the only thing, there was a hotel over here, and I ended up, it was like 3 o'clock on a Sunday morning by then. We'd been out Saturday night partying. And I walked into this hotel, didn't have any money, wasn't going to walk up to the desk and ask them if I could use their phone. I mean, what was I going to tell them? So I went over and sat down in the lobby of this hotel, and I was, <laughs> I, I wore, it was in the, the days of platform shoes. I had on platform shoes and a very low-cut blouse, and I was sitting in this hotel lobby. 
some man promptly came over and tried to pick me up. That's what he thought I was. You know, and golly, I was so scared. I ran in the ladies' restroom. <laughs> I said, no, I'm waiting on somebody. And I ran in the ladies' restroom, and then I was afraid to come out because I was afraid he'd still be there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Insanity. Just insanity that I would do something like that. And, and I couldn't call anybody. Who was I going to call at that time of morning? My brother lived not very far from there. But you don't admit to your family. You don't admit to anybody that that's happening in your life. But when I got scared enough that I knew I had to walk out and, and go up to the desk and do something, my husband walked through the door. So, you know, God, one more time, God was there in my life and working in my life and saved me from my craziness. You know, I was saved from my crazy actions. But anyway, it just, your joke made me think about that. And that happened more than once, too. But anyway, not exactly, but I got out of the car more than once. Um, I came from a, I know today, I, I grew up in alcoholism. My parents, neither one, were alcoholic. But my mother grew up in alcoholism. And her mother grew up in alcoholism. And this is a family disease, and that's what I was told when I came through the doors of Al-Anon, that this is a family disease and that everybody in the family gets sick because of the alcoholism. And my mother and her mother, too, because they, they shared with me after I t- told them I finally got brave enough to tell them I was in Al-Anon, that when they grew up in alcoholism, it was their dad that was alcoholic, that they swore as a young girl that they had never married an alcoholic. And I, I bet you, if you ask most anybody that grew up in alcoholism, uh, they'll either say they were never going to be like the alcoholic parent or they were never going to marry anybody like their alcoholic parent. That's, that's alcoholism. And anyway, when I was a young girl, my parents divorced. And when my mother remarried, she remarried a man that I believe was an alcoholic. Now, one of the first things I heard, too, is it. It's a self-diagnosed disease, and it's not for me to say whether or not somebody's alcoholic. But I also heard an alcoholic share from the podium that if you walk like a duck and quack like a duck and have feathers like a duck, you're probably a duck. And I want to tell you, there was a lot of feathers flying, a lot of quacking and waddling in our home, a whole lot. And just, you know, growing up. And growing up as a young girl, it wasn't my stepfather that was a problem to me. It was my mother. It was the untreated family member. I don't want to call her an Al-Anon because I think an Al-Anon is somebody that has a program. You know, somebody that comes to meetings on a regular basis, has a sponsor, works the steps. You know, somebody that has a program, that's an Al-Anon. So she wasn't an Al-Anon, but she was a very sick member, uh, a, a very sick family member affected by somebody else's drinking. So growing up, it was always her behavior that that bothered me. Her reaction, her reactions to what he was doing. And I didn't know it was alcoholism. I didn't know it was alcoholism. But as a young girl, I made up my mind that I was never going to be like my mother. You know, she finally forbid him to bring alcohol into the home. And we know that doesn't work. You know, for one thing, he was a traveling salesman. So, you know, that that gave him an open door, at least whenever he was out of town. But there was always... That didn't stop him from bringing liquor into the house. And so there were always fights and arguments and yelling and screaming and beer cans flying through the walls and all this stuff going on. As a matter of fact, I remember as a young girl that there were a couple of times that um, the police were called out to our home. Now, we didn't call the police, but our neighbors called the police because the craziness going on and the yelling and screaming that was going on, they were afraid somebody was really getting hurt, and they called the police out. Now, as a young girl growing up in that, I, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. And I felt somehow responsible. I don't know. But I know I carried that with me through the years until I came into the Al-Anon program. And that is being, feeling responsible for somebody else's actions. And you told me I don't have to be responsible for somebody else's actions. I just have to be responsible for my own actions, but not for anybody else's. So as a young girl, I, I decided I would, 
you know, I, I know today, if you've never heard an Alateen share, if you grew up in alcoholism, alcoholism, if you grew up in an alcoholic home, and you have an opportunity to hear an Alateen share, go and listen to the Alateen share, because you'll relate. You'll relate to them just like you relate to other people in the program. But I, when they talk about they never took friends home because they were afraid of the sounds of the house. An alcoholic home sounds different than a, other homes do. You know, I never took friends home. I never took friends home with me. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't because of the fear of what the alcoholic would do. It was the fear of what my mother would do if she got mad at me or my stepfather. Because she was a very prim and proper woman, very prim and proper. But when she was angry, she she could outcuss a sailor, that's all I can say. You know, it was... All, nothing bar. You know, she would, I know today that the only thing she knew to do was to call you the ugliest, nastiest thing she could think of. That was the only, that was the only thing she knew how to fight back with. So, I didn't, I didn't have friends around because I was afraid of what she might do. And and I'll guarantee if she got angry at one of my friends, she'd do the same thing to them as she did to us. So, I just didn't. So as a young girl, I decided that as soon as I graduated from from high school, I was going to go to college, I was going to get out of that house, and then my life would be okay. And I wasn't ever going to marry anybody like my stepfather. I was never going to be like my mother. I wasn't going to fuss at my husband. I wasn't going to yell at my kids. You know, I, was, I wasn't going to be like her. So, and my mother was one of these ladies that, um, I never talked, I never talked back to her. I mean, she, you just, you just didn't talk back to her. But on this particular night, um, right before I started my senior year of high school, my mother and I got in an argument. And she had taken away a lot of my friends that year, got mad about something and told me I couldn't be friends with them anymore and, and broke me up with a couple of different guys that I had dated in the last year and, and forbid me to, come to my, um, we lived up in Denver, Colorado at the time. My dad lived in Dallas, and she forbid me to go to my grandpa's funeral. My dad's dad passed away, and she forbid me to go down because she didn't want me to be around my dad's family. And so all these things led up to this night when I finally, she and I got in an argument, and I started talking back to her. She threw a glass of water in my face and then picked up a broom and started poking at me with the broom and said, go to your room. And I went and sat down on my bed. And my next thought was, when they go to bed, I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to get out of here. I had it. I just, I just wanted out. That's all I just wanted out. And, you know, that was the first time I had ever, ever had that thought. But I just wanted out. The next thought that crossed my mind is, if I wait, I won't go. And I got off of my bed, and I walked through the living room, and I hit the front door running with the clothes on my back. I didn't even, t- I didn't even stop and put on a pair of shoes. I just left. And, and once I got out of there, I, didn't, I had no idea where I was going. I ran around the block to a, a friend that she, she and I used to run together, but that was one of my friends that my mother said I couldn't be friends with anymore. And I ran to her house, and her mother let me stay there that night. And I called my dad, and I, I told my dad I wanted to, I want him to come pick me up. I wanted to come to Dallas, and, and I told him what I did. I told him I'd ran away, and he said, I want you to think about it overnight. If you feel the same way in the morning, I'll drive up and pick you up. So I went to bed that night. The next morning, by the next morning, this, this uh, friend's mother decided she better not let me stay there, and she told me I couldn't stay there any longer. So I had another friend that my mother had said I couldn't be friends with anymore and she hid me out she really she picked me up and took me out to her mother's house it was way out in the country and my dad and brother drove up and picked me up and I was I want to tell you I was full of fear just full of fear I was so fearful of what my mother would do to me if she found me I had no idea I was really afraid of what would happen if she found me and I knew I didn't really want to go to Dallas it was time for me to start my senior year at high school, and I was really looking forward to all the fun activities that we do in our senior year. And But I, I didn't think I had a choice. I didn't think I had a choice. I had no idea what Mother would do to me if she found me. So 
my dad and brother drove me up, and I cried 800 miles from Denver to Dallas. And we got down there, and uh, I, I stayed in my brother. My brother had been married about a year, and, I, and he had a spare bedroom, and I stayed in his house for a while. And the following month, this young man that I was dating at the time, he came down, and uh, he was in the Naval Air Reserves, and he came down, and and we were together. And when it was time to send him back after that weekend, we didn't want to. See, he didn't want to go home, and I didn't want him to go home, you know. And so somehow, I don't know, somehow we convinced my dad that if we were just married, everything would be okay. <laughs> so the deal was that we'd get married. He'd help us get married, and he'd go back up and finish his senior year in Denver, and I'd finish my senior year in Dallas, and then after we graduated, we could be together. Now, it sounded like a good plan. So we put him on the bus. My dad helped us get married. We put him on the bus, sent him back to Denver. And when we got the marriage license in the mail, I wrote him this letter and talked about how beautiful the marriage license was. And, and his mother found the letter. And so they said, you're married. Go be with your wife. And they packed him up and gave him three packs of cigarettes and sent him back to Dallas. And that's how we started. That's how we started our life together. And... We lived in my brother's bedroom for a while, and then I had a cousin that was married and had not, you know, he hadn't been married very long, and they were living with his parents still, so we got an apartment and shared it together. And I think our first winter we spent it in this this uh, apartment we shared with my cousin that we had no heat in the bedrooms, and ice would be formed on the mirrors in the morning, and and we had to share a twin bed, but you know we were we had each other. In young love, grand. Oh my goodness! If we could just if we could capture that feeling that we have at that time and and remember that through the years, I think everything would be better. But you know, we just had each other, and everything was great. We had. I know today that God worked in our life all all along. God was always working in our lives, and there were people that encouraged us to go back and and get our diplomas and encouraged him to go to college. And so this started happening. He started, you know, he went to, took some night courses, and he was getting better and better jobs. And and we were rocking along, and, and we were just two young kids having a good time. We did a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, a lot of going out. Uh, we never got together with anybody that there wasn't liquor. I can't ever remember ever having a party that we didn't have liquor involved. That wasn't a problem to me. See, I didn't know that my mom and stepfather's problem was alcoholism. And I thought it was just her bitching. I thought that was the problem. And so it wasn't a problem to me. Well, four years after we were married, our first daughter was born. And a couple of years later, our second daughter was born. And I became responsible. And you know what? He was a budding alcoholic. He wasn't through playing. He wasn't through playing. He was, you know, his his degree uh, disease was just progressing good right that time. So it started becoming a problem to me. That's what really happened. I know today, his drinking and his going out and partying, and especially since I couldn't go with him, started becoming a problem to me. So now I'm going to fast forward. And I remember I told you I was never going to bitch at my husband or do those things my mother did. I'm going to fast forward to right before we came in the program. Right before we came into AA and Al-Anon, my daughters were ages 10 and 12. And I had a part, I had a, uh, not a part-time job, but I had a job where I worked 30 hours a week. And so I was home every day when they got home from school. And we were rocking and rolling. And, and like I said, through the years, he got better paying jobs and things were getting better. But he was still going out. He'd call me and say, can I go out and have a drink with the guys? And I always said yes. I always wanted to say no. We don't have the money. We're not paying our bills. You need to come home and be a husband and a father. But I never said that. I always said, sure, that's okay. Go out and have a good time. Just call me if you get hung up so I won't worry about you. So at 11 o'clock at night, he'd call me and he'd say, I'm going to have one more drink and I'll be home. Okay. So in my mind, one more drink. I thought, okay, he'll be home about midnight. Well, midnight would roll around, he went home. And I'd start pacing the floor. 
And one minute I was cussing him, and the next minute I was praying for him. Oh, my God, maybe he's had an accident. Maybe somebody hit him over the head for the money he didn't have. He never had much money on him anyway. But then 1 o'clock would roll around, and 2 o'clock would roll around. And now I had a job. I had to get up the next morning and go to work, but I was pacing the floor waiting on him. Many times, and I, I wish I could tell you this happened once, but it happened more than once. Many times my girls would say, Mom, they could tell I was upset. And they'd say, Mom, please don't fuss at Dad when he come home. And I'd say, don't worry. Just go to bed. I'm not, I'm not, everything's cool. You know, I meant that when I said that to them. You know, I've heard the alcoholics share from the podium that when they promise their loved ones that they're not going to drink anymore, when they make that promise, they meant it. It was just that their obsession with the alcohol was greater than the promise they made to their loved ones. And that's the way my promise to my girls were. You know, no matter, I meant it when I said, I'm not going to say anything, I'm okay, go to bed. But my obsession with him was greater than that promise. And it was like when he'd finally, I'd hear his car drive in, and it's usually three or four o'clock in the morning, I'd hear his car drive in, and as soon as his hand would, the door would come in, it was like my mouth would attach that doorknob, because I was all over him, you know. I was all over it. Where have you been? How much money have you been spending? Who have you been with? And the fight would be on. And we'd yell and scream and slam doors. And and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous states that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And for me, the alcoholic was cunning, baffling, and powerful. He could always outthink me. He could always outtalk me every time. And I, I'd end up apologizing I'd end up apologizing to him for being mad. And I'd go to bed and I'd lay there and I'd think, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> but I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know it was alcoholism. There were a lot of times, I think probably every Friday night, he'd call me. I, I worked where I worked. was over across town and there was a liquor store right down the street from us called the Goody Goody Liquor Store. And it was supposed to have you know, uh, cheaper, it's supposed to be cheaper, and I was always pinching pennies, and so he'd call me and say, would you go by the liquor store on your way home and pick me up a fifth of scotch for the weekend? Now, I always wanted to say, no, I'm not going to do that. We're not paying our bills. We don't need to spend money on liquor. We can't even pay. I mean, to me, that was a luxury. You know, it wasn't a necessity. To him, he felt different about that. But anyway, um, I'd go by the Goody Goody Liquor Store, and and I would always, in my great financial mind, I'd figured this out in my great financial mind that it was cheaper. He had asked for a fifth. It was cheaper to buy it by the half gallon. <laughs> so I'd buy him a half gallon of scotch, and I'd buy me a half gallon of wine, and I'd take it home, and I'd say, now this must last for two weeks. You know, when I've told that in, in a, a group of people that weren't AA and al they don't laugh about that. <laughs> Y'all know the insanity of it, right? So, by Monday morning, it was gone. And he'd day to day, he didn't like wine. But, oh, well, when the scotch is gone, give me the wine, you know. And it was gone, and I, oh, I always asked him, where'd that go? How did you go through all? Well, don't you remember, you know, he could always outthink me and always outtalk me. Don't you remember somebody came in, come by, this one, so-and-so came by, and we sat down and had a drink, and, and I think, I, 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 just, I didn't realize what was going on. So I was just, just all this insanity, just all this insanity going on. There was, um, you know, you don't tell anybody. Yeah, I, I didn't tell anybody what was going on in our home, but I had to, finally, I was getting sicker. I was getting more and more sick, and I finally started confiding in a few people. And this lady I worked with, I started telling her some of the things that were going on, and she said, Carolyn, you're just too easy. You need to put your foot down. Well, I know today she doesn't understand alcoholism, but anyway, so I decided I was going to show him. I was going to show him how mad I was. And he always had a way of when he was mad, he'd jump in the car because 
One of the things I did often, I did this often, after the, the crazy night before I'd wake up, I was the first one awake, and I would had things I needed to tell him. He needed to know, and I would go over, he'd be asleep, and I would go over and shake him and say, I hope this ain't going to make you mad, but we need to talk. Don't wake somebody up to fuss at him. And then the fight would be on, and, and he'd get up and get dressed and go and jump in his car to go to work and squeal the tires and off he'd go. So anyway, I'd think, okay, I'm going to squeal the tires. I'm going to get mad and squeal the tires to show him how mad I am. <clears throat> well, I ended up with three speeding tickets right before I got to <laughs> Alan. I never did squeal the tires. He, he told me after he heard me share that story that my little car didn't have enough power to squeal the tires. I'm not sure I'd have known how anyway. But I would get in the car and I'd be rehashing that argument we just had. And, you know, I, how dare he say that and next time I'm going to say this and blah, 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 until I'd see those red lights in my rearview mirror. My dad was an attorney. And he got me off all three of those speeding tickets, and I always said I'm never going to let him come to al because he may learn to let me accept the consequences of my own actions. <laughs> One of my amends to him was I, he didn't have to represent me on any more speeding tickets. I was very careful. It does make a difference when you can pay attention to what you're doing. But anyway, just total insanity and craziness. And like I said, that didn't happen once. These things happened over and over and over. Each time, I would think this time will be different. This time will be different. This time I will say it differently. This time I'll say something and it'll, he'll hear me. Uh, and I tried everything. I tried crying. I tried yelling. I tried bitching. I mean, you name it. I tried everything. And I and I finally got to a place where I knew I was dying inside. I was dying inside, and I didn't know what was going. I really didn't know what was going on. So um, one night, I was in all of this craziness and everything. I finally got in the car and I drove down to my dad's house. He lived about uh, an hour from from out of Dallas, and. I drove down to his house because I finally started telling people. I finally started reaching out and, and, and telling people what was happening because I didn't know what to do. And I started telling him these things that were happening. And everything I'd say to him, he'd say, that's typical of an alcoholic. That's typical of an alcoholic. And the only reason I know that he knew anything about that is because he had a brother-in-law that was in the AA program in California. And his brother-in-law had been there just a few months prior to that visiting them, and it was having a hard time staying sober. So they put his, they put him in the car and drove him up to the Preston Group in Dallas to get help. And, of course, my dad and stepmother, taking this alcoholic in for help, they gave them some Al-Anon literature because they were the family members. And they had he had that piece of Al-Anon literature there, and it's a merry-go-round named Denial. And I still think that that's still one of my favorite pieces of Al-Anon literature because it explains how everybody around the alcoholic gets caught up in the disease. It explains how we all get caught up in the disease of alcoholism. And I took that pamphlet home and I read it. And for a long time I said I related to what was in that program. But today I know what I really did is I found him in it. You know, I read that pamphlet and, yeah, he does this and, yeah, he does that and, yeah, he does this. So uh, after another one of our usual morning yell and scream, him getting the car, squealing tires and going off to work, uh, when I got to my job that morning, I called the AA intergroup office. Now, I, all of our Al-Anon literature says if you need help, and it tells you how to reach Al-Anon. I didn't need help from me. I needed somebody to tell me what to do about him. He was the problem. I didn't need help, and I called the AA intergroup office, and this lady that answered the phone, I started, I don't know what I said to her, I started telling her I thought my husband was maybe an alcoholic. 
Even after talking to my dad and having that piece of Al-Anon literature, I still wasn't convinced that that was the problem. I wasn't convinced. I didn't, I didn't know if he was alcoholic or not. What I wanted him to do was to mind me. <laughs> if he'd just mind me, everything, you know, just do what I wanted him to do, then everything would be great. But anyway, I got there and I started telling her and she said, you know, if somebody's drinking is a problem to you, then you need Al-Anon. She gave me two numbers to call. And I talked to these two ladies on the phone, these two Al-Anon ladies on the phone. And what they did on the phone to me that night was they shared their experience, strength, and hope. And we, we have a service in Dallas right now where people are on the phone at night willing to talk to newcomers calling in that need help. Or they'll talk to people if you're not a newcomer, if you need somebody to talk to. But we have that service in Dallas still, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. But these two ladies shared their experience, strength, and hope with me. And what, when I got off the phone, I had a teeny ray of hope. Not much, but a teeny ray of hope that maybe if it was alcoholism, maybe if it was alcoholism, there was hope. And one of the ladies lived in Garland, where I live, and she invited me to a meeting. And there was a meeting at the Belmont Group in, in uh, Garland and you know, God gives us exactly what we need when we need it. And this lady described herself to me and told me what she'd be wearing, and she told me she'd meet me out front of that group. And you know, I know today I would, as afraid as I was to walk into an unknown situation, I'd have never walked through those doors by myself. Had she not agreed to meet me out front, I'd have never gone in. And the Belmont group sits... Back in an industrial area, there's nothing else around it except warehouses. And and I went into the Belmont group. I went two Wednesdays in a row. And I remember going into those meetings, and and they said the they said the Serenity Prayer, and they said the Lord's Prayer. And I remember looking around the room, and they had the slogans on the wall and the steps and the traditions. And, and I remember just sitting there thinking, I didn't know they were spiritual principles. I didn't know that's what they were. But I remember thinking, Boy, if everybody could live by these, whatever, you know, wouldn't we have a great world if people could live by these things? I didn't know they were spiritual principles. I heard a couple of things. I went two Wednesdays in a row because, and I didn't continue going, but I sat there and I wondered how I could find an hour a week to attend a meeting. Now, if you're watching an active alcoholic, it takes a lot of your time. And they passed the basket at the end of the meeting, and I wondered if I could afford to put a dollar in the basket. And I went to those two meetings, and I heard a few things. I heard to get off his back. I heard to quit lying and covering up for him, to let him accept the consequences of his own actions. They told me that every time I fussed at him about his drinking, I was buying him a free drink to learn to keep my mouth shut. And somehow, and I know today, it was, and they gave me a newcomer's packet with some more Al-Anon literature. I know today that by the grace of God, because how did I do that with two meetings and a newcomer's packet? But by the grace of God, I was able to start getting off his back. I quit fussing at him. I quit lying and covering up. And it wasn't any little, it wasn't any big things. Which is little things, little lies that he was telling to people. But I, I quit lying and covering up for him. I, I let him accept the consequences of his own actions. But most of all, I started keeping my mouth shut and I quit reacting to things that was happening. I quit fussing and bitching about everything. And I know today, I, 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 it amazes me because after I finally got now and on, it was a lot harder to keep my mouth shut. So it had to be the grace of God that helped me at that time. Anyway. Because of this, to um, again, I was getting sicker emotionally, spiritually. I was getting sicker, and I was. Just, I, I, I started asking God for guidance. I, I wanted guidance. I finally got to where I quit asking for guidance for us, and started asking for God to lead me to help to for me and my, those those two girls, because. I just, I knew I was, I had to do something different. I knew I had to do something different. So, I finally got to a place, uh, the girls and I went to a father-daughter camp out one weekend, and he refused to go. 
he was staying back to party with his friends and got down at that camp out. And when I went to bed that Saturday night, again, I asked God, I said, God, you've got to let me know what I, what I need to do for me and the girls. Tell me what to do. And when I got up that Sunday morning, it was as clear as it could be. It was as clear as it could be. And I took the kids and dropped them off at my dad's house on the way home. And, you know, I told my dad, I said, I have to do something, and can they stay here for a while? And he said yes, and he knew. My dad knew. Everybody knew. I was the only one that didn't know what was going on. I drove home, and I packed all his stuff, and I set it by the the front door. I packed it in black trash bags because I wasn't going to let him have our suitcases. (laughs) And I called him, and I said, you need to come pick up your stuff because I can't live like this anymore. And, you know, that's not what I wanted to do, and I didn't do it to get him sober or to get him to do anything. I did it to save my life and, and those two girls. That was the only reason I did it. And he came, and he, and he when I said, you've got to come pick up your stuff, he said, I'll be there when the football game is over. And I said, okay. Thirty minutes, he showed up at the front door, and he got his stuff and left. And I knew he'd probably say, boy, I'm glad to be rid of her. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Because that wasn't what it was about. It was about saving my life. For that month, he moved in with a buddy out by uh, the lake. And every day he'd call home and talk to the kids. And at the end of that month, the girls and I went to a... Now, I didn't keep going to Al-Anon. I didn't keep going to Al-Anon because I told him, you know, I asked those ladies that night, should I tell him I'm coming to Al-Anon? And they said, we can't make that decision for you. We don't make decisions for people in this program. I can share with you what worked for me, but it's your decision. I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you how I worked through something, and if you choose to do it, then fine. So anyway, I did tell him, and I told him I was going down the line. I told him it was about me. I said, it's about me. It's, you know, because that's what they told me. They told me it was for me, and it was about me. But he didn't like it, so after that, every time we went anyplace, he'd say, I can't drink because my my wife's going down on those old biddies are sitting down there talking about me. And so, you know, I quit going. Of course I quit going. Don't make him unhappy. Don't rock the boat. Peace at any price. And anyway, this particular night, uh, the girls and I, after he'd been out a month, uh, the girls and I went to a, birthday, a friend's birthday party. We got home. We could tell he'd been at the house. I put the girls to bed. And he called, and he wanted to come home, and he wanted to come by and talk, and he wanted to talk about getting back in the house. And, you know, in my newcomer's packet, or in the meetings, one of the two things, I heard that you didn't talk to them when they're drunk, and I could tell he'd been drinking. And I said, no, you've been drinking, we'll talk tomorrow. And he said, fine, and he slammed the phone down, and in 30 minutes he showed up at the house. And he came in the door that night and for the first time I could see his pain for the first time I could see his pain and I really believe it was those two meetings in that newcomer's packet that I read and I could see his pain and I felt compassion for him and I didn't have the need to say anything ugly or to yell at him and he tried his best to pick a fight with me He did everything he could to pick a fight, and I just didn't need to fight. So because I wouldn't fight with him, he started slapping himself. And he slapped I'm I'm telling you, he slapped himself so hard that his face was swollen. And about that time, we turned around, and the kids were in the hallway, arm in arm. They were watching this. They were watching their dad beat up on himself. And he stopped, and we went and put him to bed. And in typical alcoholic insanity, here's Dad beating up on himself. And we said, just go to bed. Everything's fine. You know, don't worry about a thing. So we went in and sat down, and he said, I need help. And I said, are you willing to go right now? And he said, there's no place to go. Now, by this time, it was about 3 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And he said, there's no place to go. And I said, yes, there is. AA is always there. That's what I heard I heard in those meetings that AA was always there, and so I thought that all the groups around town stayed open 24 hours a day, (laughs) so if you had a wet drunk, you could take one in, you know. Well, I had a wet drunk, so I put him in the car, 
Now, the insanity of it is, too, that my girls were ages 10 and 12. We didn't go in there and say anything to them. We didn't say we'll be back. We left them in their bedrooms and got in the car and left at ages 10 and 12. They we, we just left, left them asleep. I just finally, a few years ago, I asked them if they went to sleep, and they did go to sleep. Isn't that a miracle that they went back to sleep after all of that? Anyway, I drove him over to the Belmont group. We drove up in front of this group. I already told you it was in an industrial area, and there were no cars. There were no lights. There were nothing. And my heart sunk. I thought, oh, my God, there's got to be somebody here. And I said, let's just go knock on the door. And we went up knocked on the door, and in a minute, a man answered. And he said, can I help you? Well, I also read in the newcomer's packet. It had to be his idea, so I kept my mouth shut, probably for the first time in a long time. And in a minute, he said, I think I might have a drinking problem. And the man said, wait just a minute. He said, I'll be right back. I'll let you in. And he went away. He came back. He let us in. He sat down. And he talked to my husband, because that's the way AA works, the alcoholic sharing with the alcoholic. That's the way AA works. And he shared with him for a little while, and he looked at the clock, and he said, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. He said, would you be willing to come to a meeting this morning at Preston? And my husband agreed, and we went home. Now, because all of this happened, I let him sleep on the couch that night. And that man called him the next morning. He followed through on that 12-step call. He called him and said, are you still coming? And Terry had told you today that that's why he got up that Sunday morning and went to that meeting. Because he promised this stranger that he'd be there. And so we went to the open AA speaker meeting that morning at Preston. And he went into AA and I went into Al-Anon. And I'm so grateful I started at a group like Preston Group in, in Dallas. Because it was a large group, very active. Uh, they talked a lot about the importance of sponsorship. They talked a lot about the importance of service. That's where I heard you never say no to an AA and Al-Anon request. Um, they interacted with each other. The Al-Anons and AAs interacted with each other. Uh, like I said, the, the active members of AA played a very, very big part in my recovery. All the years, but especially in my early recovery. I could believe it from you. The open AA meetings and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous helped me to have some understanding of what alcoholism is about. You know, because it's hard, it was hard for me to comprehend how you could not just put a drink down and not drink. But it was the open AA meetings and reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that taught me about alcoholism. And I'm so grateful for that today. I'm so very grateful. I started working my program. I got a sponsor. They told me I needed a sponsor. I had a hard time picking my sponsor because I was looking for the perfect sponsor. And I, I can tell you that um, the lady that is, she's still my sponsor today. About nine months into the program, I, I had a sponsor, a lady that I was using as a sponsor, that I really let my husband and his sponsor pick for me the first time. That's how sick I was. And she moved away when I was nine months into Al-Anon. And when she moved, I knew I needed to pick my own sponsor this time. And I prayed about it. And this lady came into my life that she worked at the 7-Eleven from 11 night to 7 in the morning. And she was a gift because we'd go to the meetings at night. They were 8 o'clock then. And now sometimes meetings are different times. But at that time, all meetings were 8 o'clock. You got out at 9. Quite often you went for coffee. So we'd get home at 11 or 12 o'clock. He'd go to bed and go to sleep and I'd go crazy. But I could call her and not wake her up. And she'd talk to me, and she'd put me on hold when she had to wait on a customer, and then she'd come back. She, One time she said, it was just amazing. We could pick up right where we left off. I said, you better believe it. I knew where I was. I was always talking about him. I knew exactly where I was. And she was such a gift, and she's still a gift today. She she has Parkinson's, and, and she still goes to her meetings on a regular basis. She's a very, uh, people in Dallas admire her. She has a strong Al-Anon program, and, and she's just been a gift in my life. Before I forget, I want to tell you, too, I always try to talk about it when I talk about my new sponsor, because also about that time, we were in the program a little less than a year, and a, um, 
sober member of Preston came up to him one night. He told his story from the podium and how he found the AA. And she said, I want to tell you the rest of your story. She said, I was on the phone to that man that night, that man that was at Belmont Group. She said, I was on the phone to him. And even in sobriety, life had gotten bad. And he had locked himself in the bathroom when they locked up that night so he could sleep on the couch because he didn't have any place to go. And he had a gun and a bottle. And he was going to do one of two things. He was either going to drink or he was going to kill himself. And she had just said to him, hang in there one more day. What you need is a wet trunk to work with. And that's when we knocked on the front door. Now, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. For a long time, I thought the miracle was that my husband got sober. But today, I know the miracle was that three lives were saved that night. Three lives were saved that night. And that man, I know he stayed sober. I've lost track of him the last few years, but uh, my now ex-husband is still sober. He lives in Houston. and I mean, I'm sorry. He lives in San Antonio, and we're friendly. We're not friends because I think if we were friends, we could have stayed married. But we are friendly. And and he has since done some really nice things for myself and, and our kids. And that's all I asked of him. At one time when he tried to make amends to me, I said, you know, just just if we were together, there might be things that we would do for our grown children and our grandchildren that just let's not let them do without because we're not together. And he has honored that. He really has honored that. Um, so anyway, I got busy in my program. They told me to get off his back, that his program was his program and my program was my program. But I want to tell you, every Friday night when we went up to the big Friday night open meeting, there was a little AA member that used to stand in the coffee bar, and I'd run up to him and I'd start telling Pat uh, all the stuff that Terry was doing or not doing. (laughs) And, you know, he said to me one day, he, he used to, have a cigar in his mouth, and he'd say, Honey, you just stay close to those Al-Anons, and you do what those Al-Anons tell you to do, and you leave him to us. You can't shit a shitter. <laughs> and, you know, it was things like that. That's why I need the alcoholics to share with us, because you help us. You help us to know how to let go and the, and the importance of letting go and, and letting the alcoholics have their life and their program and leave them to God. And I, I, I'm not sure I could have done it if it wasn't for the alcoholics sharing with me. So I got busy and I got active in service. I became a GR. Uh, our new group, Omega Group, got started about when I was in the program about a year and a half. And it became important for our new little group to be uh, to survive. And so I got real active in service. I became a GR and a DR and was going out to assembly all the time. I went to conferences. on. I love conferences. I absolutely love conferences. So for me to be invited to come and be a part of a conference is just a blessing. It is just a blessing, and, and I just enjoy it so much. And I got busy working the steps, working with others. I sponsored other people, and I got off his back, and you told me that he was none of my business, that I just needed to take care of my business. And I was doing that. And I thought things were getting better. And what I realized today, that my life was getting better. My life was getting better. And that's really what you promised me. You didn't promise me that my marriage was going to get better or my kids were going to behave. or You didn't say that. You said, if I keep coming and I do the things that you tell me to do, that my life would get better. And it did get better. At seven years into the program, Terry came to me one night and he said, I don't love you and I'm leaving. And I want to tell you, I wish I could say I was okay with that, but I felt like somebody cut off my right arm. We'd been married by about 22 years by then, and, and I just couldn't believe it. And I, I really wanted AA and Al-Anon to fix our marriage. Now, my sponsor told me many times that that's not what AA and Al-Anon's about. It's about saving lives, not marriages. It has. I've seen it save marriages and put relationships back together and and heal families, but that's not what we're about. We're about saving lives in these rooms, and we do that. And anyway, we uh, I was able to release him with love because of Al-Anon, and I walked through that with dignity and grace, and I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. 
And, of course, I found another alcoholic. Well, of course I did. <laughs> well, I love alcoholics. Well, of course I found another alcoholic. You know, about four years later, this little alcoholic showed up, showed up in my life, and, and he didn't have a whole lot of sobriety. He'd been around the program but had a hard time staying sober, and I remember worrying about what everybody was going to think about me because he didn't have very much sobriety. Really, you know. You know, they used to tell me how, I used to hear the alcoholics share about how selfish and self-centered they were, and I thought, yeah, you really are. And then I thought, hmm, you know, had to look at myself and how selfish and self-centered I am. But anyway, he started asking me to marry him, but I made up my mind until he had a year's sobriety. I wasn't going to say yes. I didn't tell him that, but I, you know. So anyway, after he had a year's sobriety, I agreed to get married, and we got married. And he started a, his own business. He wanted to, of course, so many alcoholics, they, they don't like working for other people. And so he start, wanted to start his own business, and we started a landscape business. And, and um, I, about the time, a couple of years into him starting this landscape business, he, I got laid off from my job, and he said, work it with me. Come on and work it with me. And so we worked this business together. And it was wonderful. It really was. It was scary in the wintertime. And I'm telling you, without my Al-Anon friends, my sponsor and the ladies I sponsor and the other people from my group, and I'd show up and say, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> and they'd say, it's just one day at a time, Carolyn. It's just one day at a time. Is everything okay right now? Is everything okay? you got food to eat and clothes on your back and a roof over your head. Is everything okay right now? Oh, yeah. Everything's okay right now. And over and over again, we made it through the winters and kept progressing. And um, In 2004, I went off to a conference for the weekend, and when I got home, everything I thought was great. I thought everything was great. And two days later, Alan came to me and said, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this can't be happening again. That was my first thought. This cannot be happening again. And and I thought, you know, we, we the, our business had grown and prospered, and we've just got, our business got better and better every year. And we didn't argue and fight all the time like my first husband. And I absolutely did not know where this came from. I did not know. And two days later, he moved in with the lady that I was sponsoring. And I can't tell you the pain that I felt, but I knew one thing. The one thing I knew and the the hope that I held on to is I made it through one time before with dignity and grace. And with Al-Anon and God and the people in this program, I could make it through this too. And I have. And I have. Uh, I'm okay today. And my life really is fuller and better than I ever dreamt possible. It really is. It's not that I have a lot of money or a lot of material things, because that's not really what's important. But my life is better. And I'm better. And and I've walked through. And, you know, I've, I've been able to share some experiences with other people and help them through. And that's what we're all about. It's just being willing to share our experience, strength, and hope and help somebody else when they're walking through the same kind of pain. And I don't care what it is. When I, when my dad died of cancer, when my brother died of cancer, you were there for me. Whatever I've walked through in this program, every, every time I think, oh, my gosh, I can't go, I can't do this, I can't do this. And God puts the right people. He gives me exactly what I need when I need it. And it's happened for me over and over and over. I'm very active in the Crested Butte Mountain Conference and that's been a miracle for me year after year after year that I get to go up there. Many, many times I've gone up there thinking, I don't have the money for that this year. And, and somehow it always, always works out. If you have fear of financial insecurity, I'm telling you, put it in God's hands. Put it in God's hands. Remember, stay in today, one day at a time, one day at a time. He just gives us what we need what right now today. And he has me over and over again. And I've gone up there year after year. Last year, I was one of the chairs of that conference. And I want to tell you, for me to stand up there and to be able to do that, it was just it was one of my miracles. Because it was one of my favorite conferences. And for me to be a part of that today, I'm on the board. 
And if you want to know more about it, I'll tell you it's an absolutely wonderful week-long conference. It starts on Sunday night and goes to Friday. Family-oriented, beautiful, uh, up in the Rocky Mountains in August. <laughs> Y'all need to be up there, too, just like Dallas does. Uh, we love it in August in the mountains. So, um, But it was, a, it was one of those gifts because it was one of those things I never, ever dreamt I could ever do. And through this program, I've been able to. And I'm going to close with this story because uh, I don't have time to tell you all my other miracles. I mean, I've had many. And I, want to, I want to say one thing before I close with that story. My girls are good today. They're well. My oldest daughter is a youth minister at her church, and she works with young people. They were both very active in Alateen. Very active in Alateen. Stay somewhat around the program. They're not in the program, but they stay around it. They still come to conferences sometimes or group anniversaries. But her, she never went to college, but her training she got in these rooms. And she does a fabulous job with those young people. And my youngest daughter, she lives with me now, but she's doing well. A couple of years ago, they all worked in the business together with me and Alan, so when we got divorced, my oldest daughter and her husband found other jobs, but my youngest daughter decided to stay there until a year after the divorce, he closed the business and walked away from it. And so she was out of a job. And so she lost her apartment, and she ended up moving in with me. And at the time, she kept saying, I don't want to move in with my mother. And I said, and your mother does not want you to move in with her. <laughs> but, you know, it's been a gift. It's been a gift. And because... She had her Alateen program, and I have an Al-Anon program. We know to stay out of each other's lives. We know how to be there for each other, but to mind our own business. And and so it's worked out okay so far. It's worked, Really, uh, I had a, a Rottweiler that died about three months ago, and so it was really a, a gift for me that she was there when I went away for weekends, that she could be there to watch the house and the dog and everything for me. But, again, I totally believe that because of... Her Alateen and my Alanon is why we can live together as peacefully as we do, because we know to mind our own business. But we also know how to love each other, how to love each other unconditionally, and I think that's important. My mother and I did heal our relationship. Through the steps of this program, I healed my relationship with my mother. Through working my fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth step. And and my mother and I heal that relationship from me, from when I ran away. I know today I caused her a lot of pain. I caused her a lot of pain. And and I had a lot of self-real one riot as a young girl. I had a lot of that, wanting to do things that I wanted. I was, I was grounded most of my teen years, I think, because I was always caught doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And so we were able to heal that through this program. I was able to heal that relationship with my mother. And now I'm going to close with this story because I think it kind of explains how this program is for me. A few years ago, I went to Crested Butte, and, and sometimes uh, Alan went with me, and sometimes he couldn't go because he'd stay back for the business. And uh, I always take other ladies with me. And this young lady that went with me that year, she uh, was about 10 years younger than I was. And, and, and like I said, this was about 10 years ago, maybe 15 and she was very athletic, and she said, we're going to climb to the top of Mount Crested Butte. That's one of the things they do there, too, is they'll climb up the mountain, and they'll have a meeting on top of the mountain. Some only go halfway up to what we call the meadows, and some go all the way to the very tip, very tip of this mountain, and have sit around the tip of this mountain, and they have a meeting. And she said, we're going to climb to the top. And I said, you've got to be kidding. That's always my first response. And she said, no, we could do it. So we started up the mountain as this morning, and the, the air is much thinner. It's like 1,100, 11,000, is it, miles above sea level, something like that. It, it's thin air, and so you'd walk a while, and you'd have to stop and rest. And then people would pass us, and they'd say, because we're all doing this together. All these people in the conference are doing this together. And they'd say, keep coming. It's just one step at a time. So we'd get up, we'd catch our breath, and off we'd go. And pretty soon, they'd be sitting on the side. And we'd say, just keep coming. It's just one step at a time. And we got up. You get up to this, this spot on the mountain where there's no longer a path. Now you're actually climbing over boulders. 
these big boulders. And I stopped there and I thought, oh, my goodness. And she was already at the top and there were people going around me. And there was a man standing here and he said, you know, this is the fifth time I've climbed up to this mountain. The fifth year I've done this. And I thought, well, yeah, good for you, you know. And in a minute, she called down, and she said, because these people were passing me, and she said, come on, you're almost here. Watch the steps they take and follow their steps. And isn't that what we do in these rooms? We watch the steps that the people took before we were here, the ones that that were here for us when we came in the doors, and we make it to the top, whatever the top is for us at the time. I made it up to the top of that mountain. We sat there and had a meeting. And I, and I remember when I stopped down there before I started up that last bit that I thought, is this self-real run riot? What am I doing up here? You know, that man that was standing there, he started cheering. He said, you know, I stopped right down there where the boulders are, started. And he said, I stood there and thought, is this self-real run riot? Or <laughs> We're all so alike. We're also alike if we're just willing to share with each other what our thoughts are. And I sat up on top of that mountain, and I looked out, and it was just awesome. I had the most awesome feeling came, that came over me that with God and the people in this program, I can do anything. I can do anything with my God and the people in this program. And that's what happened for me over and over and over again. And I've made it through time after time, and made it to the top. I'm now enrolled in college because I didn't go to college when I should have. And um, and that's because of the encouragement that I get in these rooms. Thank you so much for letting me come and share.